0: You're listening to an event from the US Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Into the broader conversation with the speakers. As a reminder, the event is on the record and will be available on USIP's YouTube afterwards. For more on Resolve's work, on Renvi ideologies and trends around the world, as well as on online information ecosystems in which Renvi actors and ideas interact, please visit our website. Research from both projects seek to provide information necessary in better understanding and addressing Renvi trends, variations and communications around the world. I'm honored to introduce our chair for today's event, Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris. Dr. Miller Idris is a professor at American University in Washington DC, where she directs the Polarization and Extremism Research Innovation Lab, Peril, in the Center for University Excellence. She has testified before the US Congress and regularly briefs policy, security, education and intelligence agencies in the US, United Nations and other countries on trends in domestic via extremism and strategies, prevention, disengagement. She regularly appears in the media as an expert source and political commentator and her most recent book is Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right*. Before handing over to Cynthia to introduce our three incredible experts today on behalf of USAP and Resolve, thank you again. We're looking forward to an insightful conversation.
2: Thank you, Alistair, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and I'm really looking forward, for completely selfish reasons, to this conversation uh, where I will listen and learn um i'm delighted to introduce our three speakers i'll introduce them all at once right at the beginning and then we'll go in sequence um so we have with us today dr julian drugen who's a senior lecturer in the department of security studies and criminology at Macquarie university is also the editor-in-chief uh the journal of policing intelligence and counterterrorism uh, and uh, we also are joined then, uh, together with Julian, we'll hear from Dr. Lise Waldeck, who's a lecturer in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at the same university, which I realize I also may not be pronouncing right, so you'll have to correct me on that, Macari University. Uh, Lise is also a member of the Executive Committee for the Addressing Violent Extremism and Radicalization to Terrorism Research Network. And then finally, we'll go to Canada and hear from Dr. Amarnath Amar singham who's assistant professor in the School of Religion uh, at Queen's University and is also a member of the Resolve Research Advisory Council. Uh, So I'm really excited to hear about, to take this outside of the United States context or the context of Western Europe, where we're often in conversation about the issue of rising uh, white supremacist extremism, racially, ethnically motivated violent extremism, far-right extremism, to get into conversations about the even that issue of terminology across borders about legal issues nationally. uh, And most importantly, I think about trends and contextual factors that we've been seeing uh, in variation or in parallel um, across different global and national contexts. So I'm going to turn it over first to Julian and Lise, who will share some slides and tell us a little bit about um, what's been happening in Australia.
0: Um, thank you so much, Cynthia, and thank you for the introduction. Um, so thank you all for having us here today or tonight in Australia. And um, we're here, Julian and I, to discuss um, um, our research, which is drawn from a series of funded projects that we've completed um, alongside our colleague, um, Dr. Brian Barson Stanton, a data scientist who can't be with us here today. Um, over the past six years, we've engaged in a series of Um, funded research projects um, focused on the digital environment and um, communities and organizations that fall within the uh, remit of REMV. our primary stakeholders have been the new south wales government and we have really explored um, the way in which individuals organizations um, and communities um, have operated across different platforms within this ecosystem or digital environment
3: and so what's the situation uh, down under nearly three years after Australian man uh, Brenton Tarrant carried out the Christchurch terrorist attacks in New Zealand? Well, for far-right-blind extremists at the moment, the current environment is really one that's uh, basically characterised by both crisis and also opportunity. Uh, They're under increased pressure from government, from the media, and also from the general public and public opinion. Uh, Many of the leaders of far-right groups in Australia are currently incarcerated or under significant security uh, and uh, scrutiny from our law enforcement and intelligence agencies. However, a broader growth of anti-establishment sentiment and support uh, is likely to remain in Australia, even as the current crisis brought about by COVID-19 starts to recede uh, into the uh, back view mirror. Currently, the National Socialist Network, uh, the group that you can see up there in black, uh, is the main group, a nationwide group in Australia. Uh, They've really federated a series of former groups together under a national umbrella um in that image they are doing the hail hitler salute uh, in front of our parliament house in canberra but also other groups like the proud boys uh, and small chapters related to international movements such as the former atomwaffen movement the order of the nine angles combat 19 and others uh, do exist in australia but seem to be quite uh, ephemeral uh, short-lived and changing uh, very rapidly Now COVID-19 has provided a unique environment for uh, far right groups and for REMV groups more widely here in Australia. Um, The REMV milieu both online and offline uh, has definitely proactively appropriated the opportunities created by the crisis of the pandemic uh, and also the associated public health measures which you might know have been quite um, dramatic uh, in parts of Australia even draconian. Uh, The meme above on The right shows these uh, genocide themes uh, being brought into COVID public health responses, things like COVID tests and so on uh, in the cities and how the far right is using this to spread uh, racial supremacist uh, and uh, uh, xenophobic language and ideas. Moving away from the specifically violent uh, side of violent extremism, in Australia we also have a growing number of small but significant uh, political entrepreneurs who are capitalizing on this confluence of the far right uh, and societal anxiety uh, about COVID uh, and the associated public health measures.
0: And so very much like America, Australia is a highly uh, multicultural society. And as a consequence here in Australia, we have experienced all aspects of REMV extremism and at times associated violence we see risks emerging from a range of different extremisms, Islamist extremism, Buddhist extremism, Hindu extremism, the far left extremists, as well as right wing extremists. And So you can see from these images on the slide um, in front of you that this complex risk mix of extremisms are incredibly diverse, but what they are all seeking to do is effectively undermine social cohesion and attack and overthrow Australian liberal democracy. So how do you adapt to this complicated environment? And we see that one of our intelligence agencies here in Australia, ASIO, um, have recently changed the official language used to describe extremism. And they have essentially adopted um, two umbrella terms, ideological and religious extremism. Now, This change, of course, um, has not been without its challenges. And so in our own research, we've really tried to found what we're studying and found right-wing extremism um, as an umbrella term. We use it to refer refer to a broad set of social and political movements that they themselves draw from um, right-wing political discourse, and they do so to undermine the foundations of Australian liberal democracy. These um, individuals and movements and organisations are really characterised by a reliance on a very polarised worldview that is entirely intolerant of dissent. It is pro-white, actively suspicious of non-white others. And ultimately, these are individuals and organisations that are revolutionary rather than conservative in their
4: approach.
3: Yeah, and so the projects that we're really talking about today uh, focus on far-right extremism uh, for the most part. And the the data that informs our studies comes from a collection of social media platforms, uh, including Facebook, Twitter, uh, Gab, Reddit, The Chans. And we recently, having started incorporating um, big YouTube data, Uh, as well as uh, smaller samples of telegram data into our uh, broader research projects. So what we do is we conduct cross-platform studies of multiple social media accounts across time. This gives us a broader perspective on the far right in Australia, um, as well as the ability to see how language and the social dynamics that under play and undergird this language uh, are changing over time. You can see some of our data sources uh, on the screen, um, including Facebook data from a number of far right groups in Australia. Facebook is, of course, you know, notoriously difficult to work with, however, and uh, to get data from. Um, Twitter data with over 5 million tweets in one of our recent projects. Uh, gab data with uh, 1.3 million Gab uh, toots, as they're called, uh, both pre and post their change to the Mastodon servers. Gabby is a very active space in Australia for the online far right and the far right milieu and it's a space that's that's grown enormously uh, during the COVID period. Uh, YouTube we've recently collected 13 million plus comments from 21 Australian uh, associated YouTube channels uh, as well as Telegram and we're seeing I think as in other parts of the world a movement of the the far right and aligned anti-government conspiratorial groups and, uh, and social movements uh, onto this encrypted space with the potential for a distillation effect occurring uh, as that happens.
0: Um, and so one of the um, key findings from our research really parallels that of the broader terrorist literature, and that is that sociality is a key driving characteristic of um, online right-wing extremist environments and views. So this is a word cloud that really is just a visual aid. It just looks at the frequency of terms in our GAB data, which is historical um, from 2019 up to 2020. Um, And what you can see is a real prevalence of words such as people and like and white. And these are words that convey a pervading sense of social connectivity across shared values, interests, and norms within this online community um, here in Gab. And this is a real space where in-group humor, satire, visual imagery, and um, in-group language really reinforce these social connections. This. Um, environment and this use of language and satire, etc., really provides users users with a real sense of belonging and identity, and this helps them to feel part of a movement, feel something that is bigger than themselves. And you can see from the meme on the right, which is drawn from um, our work on HN now 8kun, um, the uh, Australian image of Brendan Tarrant, the Christchurch terrorist perpetrator um, who was from Australia. And it's really used to glorify the perpetrator in attack and kind of draw on in-group humor around Australian um, um, characteris- um, um, humorous characteristics. And so this socially connected space really, as I said, reflects border terrorist literature and the critical role that we know social networks play in helping to engage individuals and moving individuals towards and into extreme ideologies and at times into acts of violence. And um, our work in this space also highlighted the critical role that emotions can play among users. And what we saw um, in some of our research on both Gab and Twitter was an interplay of the um, emotion of anger and the prevalence of anger. Now, often we characterize anger as a really negative emotion, but actually a lot of um, broader research really highlights how, particularly within social movements, anger can correlate with Behaviors of engagement and mobilisation and a real sense of agency. Um, And this is definitely one of the the, um, key emotions that we saw within this social space.
3: I think another important high-level finding that's really come out uh, in our research over the last couple of years, and I think that will be something that we'll talk about today, uh, is the interplay between the global and the local uh, amongst the Australian far-right milieu, um, particularly the the globalisation and at times the localization of narratives. Um, You can see another word cloud up here made up of GAB posts from the same period that Lise mentioned before. Uh, And you can see just how strongly American politics, uh, American media, uh, influence as much of this community and the language that they use, in particular their narratives, their terms, um, their, uh, their hashtags uh, as well. We're, of course, making absolutely no uh, statement that the, the former President Trump uh, is, is associated in any way with Australia's far right. It's not. Uh, you can see there's another hashtag up there, Ozpol as well, which is Australian politics. What we're seeing here instead is, is the far right in Australia doing what they always do and be opportunistic using Uh, concepts and and memes and language and movements from abroad and and that are global and reinterpreting them for their own use here in Australia as touchstones. Uh, And we have seen a strong uh, importance of American touchstones in that right through. Now, this does remain the case still uh, during the COVID pandemic, but it has been complicated recently by new local uh, narratives and some new global narratives starting to emerge over the past 24 months. Um, COVID-19 has really driven a localization of narratives that are focused much more on Australian, but also on Australian state government, level issues. Um, You can see the image up there of the former premier of New South Wales being uh, shown to look like Sesame Street's Count, um, counting down the days of lockdown. Uh, That was actually posted by a a militant movement uh, in Australia. And this really affects uh, or reflects, again, the the, um, situation in Australia of public perceptions, where uh, during the big lockdowns in Victoria and also in, in New South Wales, Melbourne and Sydney, we've seen many, many Australians turn more to their state governments and to their federal governments any time they have in the past. At the same time, these um, militia movements and far-right movements have also turned to state government as well uh, as some of their touchstones for talking about local issues. We've also seen a growth in anti-Semitic Uh, sentiment tied to narratives associated with conspiracies and supposed global conspiracies, so-called globalists. Um, This already existed, of course, pre-COVID. Anti-Semitism has been pervasive in the Australian uh, far-right, but COVID has really exacerbated that with the uh, the growth of conspiratorial thinking uh, and conspiratorial uh, uh, narratives that have gone out further than than just far-right communities. We currently currently also see a uh, more limited shift to anti-Asian narratives, in particular anti-Chinese and even anti-CCP narratives uh, amongst the far right in Australia, um, instead of their usual focus on Islam, which for many years was a focus on Islam, immigration and uh, and terrorism. So the COVID-19 conspiratorial narratives have also had this objectifying effect where they're basically framed... Uh, the Aussie battler, as we call them here, the Australian white man, uh, as at the centre of what they see as a global drama, uh, a battle between the forces of good and evil. It's writ large uh, on the global stage, uh, and it takes on uh, enormous import uh, in their narratives.
0: So along these... um these more traditional narratives of white fragility and white genocide, anti-Semitism. We also noted in our research uh, a sustained increase in the prevalence of conspiratorial thinking. Um, and you can see a lexical dispersion plot really highlighting the prevalence of QAnon and associated um, references. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons why this historical data is quite interesting and really sets the scene for our current research. Um, It speaks both to what Julian's already talked about around that localization and the importance of um, other narratives, global narratives within an Australian context, Um, but also it demonstrates that the prevalence of conspiratorial thinking that we're seeing in our broader database that incorporates YouTube um, and a broader sampling of Twitter um, in, in Australia is that conspiratorial thinking was already prevalent within parts of the internet and parts of the online environment. Um, And what we've been examining more recently is the spread of these um, and the shifting of these kind of conspiratorial narratives and beliefs into more broader public sentiment. Um, And essentially what we can see in the meme um, to the right um, is that our initial findings from our current research, really uh, in line with emerging scholarship that's also doing work in the kind of pandemic times? And um, Is that this presence and this pre existing presence of conspiratorial thinking um, really provides opportunities for um, users and organizations that sit within REMV? Um, to um, align themselves with novel and new communities for purposes of recruitment and even at times potentially mobilisation to violence.
3: So we'll we'll end there our short presentation. That's really our high level uh, overview of recent findings on the Australian ReB landscape and looking forward to having the discussion and, and uh, responding to some of your questions as well.
2: Terrific. Uh, thanks, Lisa and Julian. And I, I will have questions, I promise, but I'm going to turn it over uh, back to the same time zone as me, but uh, a little bit further north to to Amr, who's going to talk about uh, India but from the perspective of Canada. So I mean, where, where he's situated, but I know we're going to hear about India here. Um, so I'll turn it over to you, Amar. Thank you very much.
4: Great, Uh, thank you. Um, Thanks uh, for the invite and thanks to Alistair for organizing. Um, I'm just gonna talk a bit about some of our research uh, that I've been doing uh, with a co-author of mine, uh, Shweta Desi Desi on um, kind of Hindu nationalism um, as it plays out in India, but um, in the question period, we can get into some of the ways in which um, it's trickling basically into the kind of transnational space as well. Um, We have a few reports out already and and one coming out with Resolve, um, hopefully in a couple of months or in a couple of weeks, Um, in terms of... in terms of kind of the broader i think theoretical frame uh, for us um it, it really goes back to what stanley taba wrote a while back and with a particular reference to sri lanka this notion of the majority with a minority complex um, and i think that is playing out um quite a bit today in parts of india in the hindu nationalist movement in myanmar and sri lanka um and i i, I, I you could probably argue that the great replacement theory um in 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 the far right is is very much uh, along uh, those kinds of lines as well this idea that you're even though you're uh, from a population perspective, from a structural privilege perspective, you're a majority in the country that you're still living with a kind of embattled mentality that you're eventually going to be taken over. That uh, you know these kinds of demographics are often shared. You know the Hindu population is decreasing, the Muslim population is increasing uh, over time, and eventually uh, that the kind of stature of of uh, Hindu population in India is going to be uh, overturned. And so there's this constant kind of demographic panic uh, in, in 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 Hindu nationalist circles that I think uh, is important to pay attention to. Um, in terms of, uh, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but in terms of the ideological background, of course, uh, people like Savarkar's writings are, are quite important. His uh, very small pamphlet that you can still find online, um, Hindutva, what, who is a Hindu, uh, basically uh, outlines the broader thinking around this movement, which I'll get into shortly. Um, in terms of an uh, the kind of organizational framework, uh, the RSS is basically uh, dominant, uh, the way in which a lot of these ideas have been operationalized and how they've evolved over time uh you see savarkar on the right there and then um Walker, who was one of the early leaders of uh, the rss on the left um, and i think um, their thinking and their ways of reaching out in many ways to kind of um, uh, fascist groups in italy and and um, kind of fascist movements in in uh, western europe at the time uh, is also quite uh, important in how they started to think about the hindu identity as largely one of race right and one of the key kind of um takeaways with Hindu nationalism that I think a lot of people still confuse is it, that that the notion of Hinduism as a religion um, is actually just one of the aspects of Hinduness or Hindutva that these guys talk about, right? It's, it's not necessarily a religious-only uh, movement. Hinduism a, a, as an ism uh, is only one attribute of broader uh, Hindu identity, which they think can, uh, includes things like geographical unity, uh, racial features, common culture, um, and that this all harkens back to uh, when Air, you know the true aryans really settled india at the dawn at the dawn of history, and declared a kind of uh, Hindu nation. Um, there's an ethnic, racial component to the nation, uh, which is very much tied up with uh, the territory of India. Whoever lived in India um, ancestrally, whoever pays loyalty to India as a as a as a as a nation or the or the Hindu nation is a, it, it kind of fits within that fold, um, which is important because it's not necessarily the kind of nation that we talk about, right? Which is largely around community or citizenship or social. Context contract, uh, for Hindu nationalists, it's its really none of those things except a kind of ethnic and racial identity of what it means to be uh, part of this movement. What's interesting, though, is that the kind of, nation of a notion of racial purity that you find in far-right movements, for example, is not really present in Savarkar's writings, right? So, so, for example, I couldn't become a white person, whereas for Savarkar, you could become a Hindu if you lived in India, if you paid homage uh, to the country as the fatherland, as a sacred land, um, and so he, he argued that these other minorities in the country, Sikhs, Muslims, Christians, et cetera, um, if they paid allegiance to the Hindu nation, if they uh, kind of were patriotic, if they understood kind of the racial and uh, ethnic element to this country, um, they would be considered Hindu, right? They were kind of originally Hindu, he would say. And and that these later identities or conversions that happened because of outside influence and colonialism and so on. So everyone who kind of lived in the Indian state structure is primarily a Hindu in the way he understood it in, in a kind of racial ethnic way, not necessarily a religious way. Um, so there's a kind of interesting difference there between, uh, Hindu nationalism as it was initially, uh, thought out with, um, with a lot of these other far-right movements that we're that we've grown accustomed to, um, in terms of how these ideas are operationalized, as I mentioned, the RSS is key. Um, it is the largest volunteer organization on the planet, um, with about 20,000 regular branches and and uh, estimates around 2.5 to 6 million uh, followers, um, and they have uh, quite a large kind of um, international wing as well. This is kind of what the the, the Sang Parivar or the RSS uh, family looks like. Of course, the political wing that we're accustomed to is the BJP, currently under the uh, leadership of Narendra Modi. Um, But there's also these other kind of social movements and social movement organizations that are part of it, uh, primarily uh, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, uh, which has under it uh, two very important um, wings, the the, the youth wing, the Bajrang Dal, which is very active today locally and internationally in terms of how it Uh, pushes activism on on college campuses and things like that. Uh, The Durkha which is the women's wing, also quite active. And so a lot of the uh, agitation that you saw, for example, around the coronavirus and anti-Muslim sentiment there was led by some of these kind of uh, youth wings of the movement. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but two kind of uh, key events are important, I think, for understanding uh, where we're at today. One of them, of course, is the destruction of the Babri Mosque. Hindu nationalists claimed uh, very early on that it was the actual birthplace of the god Rama, that there was a pre-existing temple on the site uh, of, of where the Babri Mosque was currently uh, situated, um, and that you really need to you know rebuild the temple on this site. And, and so they, the RSS in particular started a massive campaign to rebuild the temple in 1984, Uh, They got eventually tired of waiting. And in 1992, um, Hindu nationalists kind of uh, marched on the site and broke the mosque, uh, destroyed the mosque completely. Um, Riots soon followed, Um, about 2000 people were killed. Uh, It was the worst kind of, um, or the largest number of people who died in a kind of uh, riot since partition, right? Since independence from from the UK, uh, from, from the British. 10 years later um a a group of hindu pilgrims are coming down from the site uh and and it's and the train stops at a kind of uh, a city with a large muslim population scuffle breaks out Um, somehow the train is set on fire Uh, And a lot of people on the train end up dead. Um, Muslims are blamed for the killing of these religious pilgrims, uh, and it results in about two months of uh, mob violence, basically. killing and looting and raping uh, of of muslims starts to happen about 1000 people are killed mostly hindus sorry mostly muslim muslims um about 2000 muslim homes are destroyed um and 150000 people are displaced the individual in charge of of uh, the uh, gujarat at the time is of course narendra modi uh, who the, who is the current prime minister and he's had to kind of answer for this uh, lack of action on his part and silence on his part uh, for and, and that that continues um, Um, even today. So these kind of key moments of 1992 and 2002, um, you know, pre-social media, pre uh, what we're used to kind of thinking about today, um, just shows that a lot of this communal sentiment and and, and communal violence, um, anti-Muslim violence uh, does go back uh, quite a ways, Um, but a lot of it has now been accelerated and made much worse um, in the kind of broader social media context. And I'll talk about three quick case studies um, in terms of how this plays out uh, today. One of them, uh, as many of you probably remember, was the 2020 uh, Delhi riots. This came about because um, uh, something called the National Register of Citizens was pushed in the province of Assam to basically register everybody in the province as citizens. Um, and what kind of quickly became obvious was that about 1.9 million people um, could not prove their citizenship, right? They didn't have documents. They were largely asylum seekers from uh, from other countries um, and they couldn't prove their citizenship. And so this the citizenship amendment bill was introduced to kind of fast track citizenship uh, for these individuals who couldn't uh, prove their citizenship or didn't have documents in place. Um, that included basically Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, Christians from Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. You might notice something is missing here um, and that is the Muslims, right? Muslims were not mentioned in the citizenship amendment bill. Um, Uh, partly under the argument that if you were a Muslim from Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, you can just go back there, right? Not not understanding that these were largely minority Muslim communities, uh, the Shia or the Ahmadiyya who were fleeing persecution in Muslim majority countries, um, but they weren't mentioned in the citizenship amendment bill, uh, which obviously resulted in mass protest. Um, the fear of course, uh, and this was pushed by Modi at the time as a campaign slogan, uh, was that the National Register of Citizens was going to be applied internationally. Uh, across 22 provinces. Uh, and there was a real fear that if 1.9 million people can't prove their citizenship in one province, um, what is that going to look like when applied to 22 provinces? Um, and um, uh, how many people are going to be disenfranchised? What, what is the place of the Muslim community going to look like uh, nationally, if this is pushed uh, nationally? The riots and the protests were immediately reinterpreted and framed by a lot of RSS linked uh, Twitter accounts, Facebook pages, WhatsApp groups, um, tiktok videos as largely a betrayal uh, jihadist uh, minded activists who are trying to kind of destroy indian integrity or it's kind of um, sovereignty um and uh that that there needs to be a kind of pushback from the hindu majority um uh, against these kind of this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, protests and so a lot of this was reinterpreted and um the, Pushed through social media to kind of say that this, you know, fairly legitimate protest of of what what is what is the place of our uh, citizenship in this country, um, was reinterpreted as a kind of um, betrayal betrayal to the state. The second case study um, is Corona Jihad, which um, there's been a uh, some some written on it so far, um, and I, I, we have a report on it too, which I can send you if you uh, send me a message. Um, In March 2020, a kind of large gathering of the Tablighi Jamaat happened uh, in uh, their headquarters in Delhi at the Nizmuddin Marquez. It was basically a gathering of uh, preachers from 40 countries um, who came to India basically at the start of the pandemic. They all went back to their countries of origin. And obviously, uh, the the, the kind of meeting became reported as a major hotspot for uh, the COVID uh, spread. Um, this was immediately reinterpreted uh, from the very beginning as a kind of sinister plot by Indian Muslims to basically infect the population on purpose, right? And so uh, it was pushed on social media. It was pushed on um, uh, TikTok videos and Facebook posts as basically uh, something that the Indian Muslims are secretly plotting um, that to, to kind of bring bring about this mass spread of uh of coronavirus in the country. Corona Jihad started trending on Twitter in India. Tablighi virus started trending uh, in India uh, and the kind of steady flow of misinformation and hate speech on basically all platforms um, was a bit uh, was a bit insane. Um, one of the kind of the, the three of the major themes that we noticed uh, um, and I could send you this report again if you if you uh, send me a message. Um, that Muslims are kind of uh, immune to the virus, or they believed themselves to be immune to the virus, and so they're a bit more reckless with how they behave. Um, they believe that COVID is a divine punishment uh, against non-Muslims um, and that they're kind of deliberately spreading uh, COVID around the country. So there were videos on TikTok, for example, of Muslims kind of um, taking wads of money and rubbing it all over their mouths and then, you know, trying to spend it uh, in the city and so on and, and uh, basically arguing that they're spreading this virus on purpose. Um, The third case study I'll leave you with um, is what was known as Love Jihad, which is a conspiracy theory that was pushed um, for quite a while now that Muslim men are are secretly uh, or or are tricking Hindu women into marriage in in order to convert them uh, into Islam. Uh, This largely started or spread as a kind of online conspiracy theory, but then started to have real world consequences. Uh, Several BJP run states, uh, Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh actually passed anti-conversion legislation um, with penalties of jail and jail time. Um, If if kind of evidence of this was found, uh, RSS-linked groups, largely the Bajrang Dal uh, that I talked about earlier, the youth wing of the RSS, um, basically sent out advisories to schools, colleges, uh, spread out pamphlets and so on, uh, warning parents and warning young girls about this kind of uh, sinister plot by the Muslim community in the country. Hotlines were set up uh, that people could call and report suspicious activities, suspicious conversion activity that uh, the Muslims are engaging in uh, and on and on and on, right? And so uh, this this notion of kind of this demographic panic, this uh, majority with a minority complex, um, I think has been quite prevalent in India um, over time as as we've seen, but also uh, accelerating now uh, largely through uh, different social media platforms. So I will leave it there. Happy to take your questions and comments. Thank you.
2: Perfect. Thanks, Amar. Uh, So I just want to, at this point, remind the audience that you can submit questions um, through the Q&A function. Um, And I'm going to ask some questions of my own for a little while, and then we will turn to the audience questions. So as they get filtered in, they will be sent my way. So please do um, populate that Q&A with your uh, your questions so that we can get to them. so thanks, both all of you. That was really, really fascinating. And um I have so many questions. It's hard to, it's really hard to know where to begin. But I want to start with this by picking up on a concept that Amar uh, used a couple of times around demographic panic. And it seems like one of the through lines globally um, that we keep hearing again and again, whether it's through conspiracy theories like the Great Replacement or White Genocide or you know, these this love jihad kind of battle is—is is this issue of demographic um, uh, panic or concern about demographic replacement um, from white or Western or, or Christian civilization all kind of lenses? Um, and I wonder if you could each just talk a little bit about that. I mean, Amr, you just did, but but maybe you know, how is that how connected is that globally to themes like the Great Replacement? How organic is it to individual nations? And then finally, I guess related to that is how much of this is about um, actual racial identity and how much of it is about territory in a sense of entitlement to space, right? Um, because I, I see those things as so deeply related, uh, this idea that, that, uh, that certain populations belong in this space and there's somehow the sense of threat about it. But I wonder how that gets refracted in the kinds of work that each of you are doing. So maybe we can turn to the Australian case first um, Elise and Julian, anything about this idea of demographic panic or or territory compared to race or the, that intersection would be great to hear. It,
3: it's it's yeah. a it's a it's a really important issue in, in Australia. And and you may know that uh, when Brenton Tarrant, the the man from New South Wales, perpetrated the Christchurch attack, he distributed his manifesto online. Uh, prior to that attack. And that manifesto was called the Great Replacement. Uh, And in it, he drew on, you know, Rene Camus concept of of the, you know, the grand replacement uh, and drew on that fear of being uh, swamped in Australia by, as he put it, mostly by Muslims, um, people who he believed didn't belong. It's it's a it's a concept that we see right through the far right, and as Lee said before, I think during the presentation, it's really their defining concept in Australia, this notion of white supremacy, sometimes white nationalism, deep racism, um, and a sense that that other non-white people don't belong in Australia. Being, being a, a, a settler country uh, based on colonialism, um, you know, with our own indigenous history that goes back 50,000 years or more, it's a, it's a rather untenable position for them because, uh, you know, uh, you know, white people have really only been in Australia for a little over 200 years, but the narratives they put forth online are that, um, you know, white people built Australia, it was, it was built by their hard work, by their sweat, therefore it should now be taken away. Uh, and we see that with their narratives about China and the Communist Party in China and saying that China will uh, eventually invade Australia and or buy up Australia or invest in Australia and take away that uh, ability for white people to have control, um, you know, over space. One thing we do see though is that that particular narrative is not very strategically useful for them. We don't we don't see them being able to recruit large numbers of people from the public through that white supremacy or that that sort of um, democratic or demographic uh, loss narrative. Uh, Instead, they really have to push their narrative out into other areas to to get traction amongst the broader public. Um, They have to talk about something like Islamic immigration and fear of terrorism. They have to talk about coronavirus and fear of conspiracies and, you know, overstepping and overreaching by government. Then they get traction with the public for a time. But then when they come back to this this deeply racist sort of white supremacist uh, narrative, they tend to lose that 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 public traction again. So it's really it's a difficult one for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have um, when we looked at empirically in the space, um, it was really interesting at the beginning of our data collection, we saw um, a number of posts that really pushed this idea. And we had a picture of a young girl, white girl that talked about, you know, um, white genocide effectively. And then we saw links to a website that talked very much um, that had um, a film of you kind of flying over Australia, really focused on the idea that Gillian was talking about around the fact that there's a difference between settlers, kind of white Aussies who built this country up and everyone else who's a migrant. Um, obviously with a complete absence of engagement around indigenous issues. Um, But actually, when we looked at engagement, as opposed to just pure presence and pushing it out through bots, et cetera, these kind of posts weren't actually very well engaged. Um, They were really relying on the fact that Gab doesn't have the kind of algorithm that Twitter has, for example. And when we actually looked at how many people were actually kind of seeking to to touch this and, and do something with it. We, we didn't see, as Julian said, that kind of strong engagement. So I think it's important around a core narrative. Um, and it's something that allows them to have a touchstone of their identity that they can build on. But in terms of a recruitment tool and an engagement tool, that's a completely different space. And then I think that's a really important finding around the difference between what a group might hold close internally. And what they're actually going to be using in this very social space to engage with new audiences and those on the outer rims, etc.
4: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's it's something I've been wrestling with for a while. Um, you know, with my work on Sri Lanka and elsewhere, it's just I. I the way it applies the way it plays out in parts of europe is also interesting because i think there's this kind of um effect of globalization uh, of re- very real consequences of globalization demographic uh, changes that are happening uh, toronto now where i live or ontario where i live is i think 50% minority and and so uh you know so the, the, there are kind of questions that are arising of all this very rapid changes are happening over the last few decades uh, since the 80s in particular um, and that uh that kind of white identity uh, the consequences for white identity um, aren't really being unpacked right at least in, when we talk about um the far, the, the kind of uh, Western, Western Europe, or North America. Uh, the difference, I think, in India and Myanmar and Sri Lanka, of course, is that the, this is coming from uh, people in power, right, and in, in, in a kind of real governmental way, right, and and so. Uh, for them, they kind of turn on, turn on and off, or at least try to, uh, this communal sentiment largely around election cycles, whenever they needed to work. Um, and they're finding over time that much like Trump found, um, is that you can't really just turn it on and turn it off anytime you feel like it. Once you let the communalism, uh, genie out of the bottle, I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here, but, um, (laughs) but you can't really put it back, right? You can't, you can't really put it back. And so, uh, it, it, once you let it out, it kind of has consequences on its own and it moves on its own um but there is something to be said of um very rapid dem- demographic shifts that are happening and and um how uh not just white people on the far right but like um, everyday people are kind of wrestling with these identities i remember interviews with a lot of former far-right um uh, and they often talk about things like white civil rights and um and they'll talk talk about very mundane cultural artifacts like what you know why is james bond black you know that sort of thing um and and so they they point to these uh kind of issues as uh, you know,' kind of building their overall evidence base that something about white privilege, something about uh, white's uh, status and in, in society is being eroded um, and and no and we're not allowed to talk about it right and 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 so I think that that kind of anxiety uh, is very much prevalent, but I think it plays out very differently in um, in 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 some of these countries.
2: So I want to drill down on this just for a minute more because i'm I'm hearing. Um, Several different themes here that cut kind across of uh, both of these. Sorry, I'm just going to hang up my phone here so it doesn't uh, continue to ring in the background. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the themes that um, that I that I hear echoed is this idea of of uh, power and something being taken away. A, a kind of um, fear of something being taken away, a loss of power, a loss of control, loss of status. But of course, we also see very strong scientific racism um narratives that are really about dilution about racial identity about um intermarriage right this idea of conversion right that some of that those kinds of themes do you see those as the same or are they um you know are they is one a foil for the other you know are are we or what we hear people are afraid they're going to lose um, status, but what they're really afraid of is, you know, are, are some of these ideas of invasion and infection. And uh, I feel like there's a lot of um, of uh, mixed messages coming across here that sometimes don't get fully disentangled. And maybe it's just too, mix, you know, messed up and, and mixed up uh, to disentangle it, but I would love to hear hear you reflect on, on the way that you see those narratives come across.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually in our in our report we we really highlighted those those two things: this idea of white empowerment and the creation of a strong us with a dehumanized other and we actually like disaggregated this dehumanized other into different types of groups, um, all of which are you know when you think back to Mary Douglas and her ideas of purity and pollution. You know, this real, like a sense that we might be strong, but we're still under threat because you need to create that us and them. And it's not enough to have, you know, us. We have to actually be under threat. So no matter how strong we are, there's this like people coming at you constantly trying to undermine you. So I really think actually they're really important parallel themes. I'd argue that you can't really have one without the other um otherwise you know effectively you you need them to make this toxic um you know when you when you think back to kind of Jay um jane birch's work on extremism you know that sense of it's fine to have another and 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 a me but it's when you are dehumanizing i need to dehumanize you and you pose this critical threat to my survival and so i I do actually believe that it's a really important point and i think that you actually have to have really strong parallel narratives of strength and horror and destruction
3: yeah and and I'll, i'll make a point there too i think cynthia that's a really important question around scientific racism in australia because to give some context to american um audiences who might not be familiar with Australian history. You know, until the 1950s, um, we had a policy in Australia called the White Australia Policy, which meant that you couldn't immigrate to Australia unless you were basically um, a, a Northern European, better yet, a, a Anglo-Saxon European. And there were all sorts of mechanisms put in place to prevent non-white immigration into the country. And that was partly due to that geographical anxiety that Australia's had since it was formed as a penal settlement Um, of basically being a European outpost in the wrong part of the world. You know, we're surrounded by Asian countries and we're in the Far East, but we're a European society and that's deeply, deeply entrenched in the Australian psyche as much today as it was 100 years ago. It just comes out in different ways. Um, But the interesting thing is, you know, once that white Australia policy was, was overturned, That form of scientific racism you talk about, we don't see that a lot in our research. It definitely exists. You know, we do have white supremacists groups in Australia, but they don't get a lot of traction. Um, Lisa and I did a project some years ago where we actually looked at a deradicalization project that was happening on Facebook um, amongst far-right extremists. And we saw the opposite. We saw people were being drawn into the far right because of that perception of loss of prestige and loss of status. Um, And that might lead them to having lip service around scientific racism and the sense of superiority innate in their genes. But it was very thin. Um, in, in, some of the people who were being talked to on Facebook, in a way to sort of through chats to to, to de-radicalise them from from their beliefs, were actually saying, "Oh well, you know, I guess I start to think a bit differently about my my thoughts when I talk to my wife." And people say, "Well, why? Well, she's from Thailand, um, or she's Chinese, or something like that." But I still think Australians are the you know white people are the master race. And you scratch a bit further, you find that well they don't actually think that at all. They just have this sense of of, of lack of prestige and lack of status in society and so this is almost like a um like a facade they're putting up or something like that to try and give themselves a sense of strength so it's a really complex area um in australia
4: yeah no i, I think i think um I, I, was, I mean i was going to talk about burger as well but what, what's interesting about his idea or, or the kind of Broader social psychological literature on in groups and out groups is yet yeah, the, the the stronger your identification becomes with your in group, um, the the it, it immediately follows that there's a whole host of consequences for how you view the out group, right? You tend to view them as more homogenous, uh, not particularly having any nuance or diversity within the or within the out group. You tend to view them uh, as kind of emotionally driven as opposed to rationally driven, uh, whereas your in group is very much diverse in thinking and 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 rational, et cetera, um, and so the the question becomes like, why, what mechanism and this goes back to radicalization research, is what mechanisms kind of push um, heightened in-group identification, right? And how does that how does that actually come about? Because that tends to um, impact your worldview, how you kind of uh, view the threat to your in-group, uh, and then ju- and the justifications for behavior towards the out-group uh, kind of naturally follow. Um, that could be racial, that could be ethnic, that could be uh, around nationhood, as we're seeing with Hindutva um, uh, or in Myanmar, um, but. How that kind of largely comes uh, comes about, I think, is still um, something we're struggling with.
2: Great. Well, thanks for for tolerating my drill down there onto some of the deep ideological questions that I am really curious about. I want to turn for just a few minutes before we open it up to Q and A away a little bit away from the ideology per se, towards some of the more uh, strategic and tactical questions um, within these movements and how they might vary. Uh, and really, I want to ask two two questions. So I'm just going to throw them both out there, and you can decide which one you want to ask. Um, one is about this balance between offline and online worlds and the use of technologies. Um, so one of the things we're seeing here, of course, in the states, is not only the the you know the post organizational kinds of online radicalization uh, increasing, but still the persistence of old school tactics like paper flyering um, and of course, a lot of offline engagement uh, in rallies and protests and the violence itself. Uh, so you know, how do you see that offline and online interaction working um, in each of these countries and, each, and across these movements? And the second is really about the use of violence itself. Um, and if you could talk just a little bit about whether you see violence within these movements or groups as being um, kind of a means to an end or as a, a kind of valorized principle more broadly, um, and I think that that has implications for the final thing I'll ask afterward, which is about interventions. Um, so I'll let you pick up on any of those parts of it that you'd like to address, but uh, something about violence and about online and offline worlds.
0: Um, I'm. I'll oh, really muted. Minutes.
3: Yeah. A quick a quick comment on offline uh, online world, Cynthia. In Australia, we are seeing a uptick of stick and postering amongst the far right and the far left at the moment in urban centres. I think um, that's partly to do with COVID, uh, but also uh, some of those stickering campaigns from the far right explicitly um, state, you know, almost this ironic um, position which is that you know they say once upon a time uh like two years ago you know the online space was this great space for propaganda because it was it was open and accessible and you could say what you liked but now they are pushed so much off these these platforms you know to these encrypted spaces like telegram where they don't have the reach that they once had they're moving to the postering and the stickering so it, it's ironic really once upon a time the internet was seen as this free space uh, apart from the offline world Where you could say what you like. Now it's very much the opposite in these stickering campaigns. They're going back to the streets and back to putting up posters because they feel like they're being constrained uh, more and more online.
0: Um, I'd say that, yeah. uh, And I think it's also that sociality is such a big driver. And, you know, this is about identity, belonging, connection. And if you have opportunities to actually meet people in the real world. Um, As you know, the pandemic told us you know social connections are really important. And I don't like, I think that as much as we understand the online space, I think the online space is also full of anything you want it to be full of. If we go searching for these communities and for these users, they are there. And it's more about their reach and their impact and their effect, and particularly their impact into the real world, because people can, at times, say what they like more openly, even without an anonymity in an online space, without ramification, right? And it takes something else to actually meet in person, to stick at, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that the real world will always be important, but that they're so interconnected. And just on a quick one on violence is that, you know, the use of violence as a tactic is so effective. You know, it is such an effective tool of communication to raise your profile, to gain attention, to um, aggrandize yourself and your movement and your narrative. Um, if you are seeking to gain the world media and the world attention, then unfortunately violent, violence remains an incredibly strong and useful tool of. Communication, um, which points always to our resilience as societies to respond effectively and to reduce that that, that utility of the tools.
4: Yeah, I mean, what I found interesting, and this is true kind of for jihadist groups as well, is is how they frame violence. Um, depending on the circumstance between defensive violence and offensive violence, right? So a group like ISIS was very much open about its offensive uh, intentions, whereas a lot of Hindutva groups, uh, a lot of the violence in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and in even some of the far right, maybe, <laughs> is, is often framed as... Uh, necessarily defensive, right? It's it's you're defending the slow erosion of kind of purity in your identity uh, by these uh, immigrant hordes and uh, things that are coming in um, from abroad. Um, and 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 even though it's offensive violence, often it's often justified or uh, rationalized as um, defending one's in-group, a um, kind of necessarily defending one's in-group um, or an obligation to defend one's in-group. So that's always been kind of interesting to me in terms of how um, how how they frame threat and what things become framed as threat, right? We, we saw, for example, uh, or we, we routine, routinely find in Canada, uh, a lot of these Hindu nationalist um, individuals will show up at places that you never think they're going to show up at these kind of very localized school board meetings uh, and things like that and then kind of cause a scene or um, municipal council meetings and cause a scene because some mosque in the region got some rights they didn't agree with and then that becomes a whole thing. And then it gets fed into and and, and kind of feeds into your second question, which is the online offline is that um, the kind of uh, these very localized events which in a pre-social media landscape might've lived and died in these local communities um, and now get woven into kind of transnational uh, uh, media communities, right? And so all of a sudden something that happens in a very tiny city in Ontario is on Telegram and it's being talked about by communities in India, right? Which is, uh, and, and fed into kind of the grievance narratives. And and so uh, that that's something that's new, I think. Um, I mean, as we talked about, uh, Th- this has always been going on uh, even before the uh, before the internet but i think it, the the kind of uh how these narratives are fed into transnational grievances i think uh, is something new and the speed at which that happens uh, is something new
2: perfect um thanks uh to all of you i'm i have uh i want to turn before we conclude today to the question of what what policymakers can do, but I'm gonna place that on hold for a minute uh, to turn to some of the questions that are being populated from the audience, because I wanna make sure that we get uh, time to get to those. So I'm just going to ask those in the order in which they came in, um, uh, unless I can figure out a way to cluster them while you're talking. But but I'll start with the first one that I saw, which is about counter narratives. Um, So the question is, are there effective counter narratives being developed in India and Australia? And is there any evidence that political personalities who offer counter-narratives can gain support? Um, So what are you seeing on the ground in terms of effectiveness of counter-narratives in either India or Australia?
4: Um, I can start quickly. I I mean, I think... um... There's efforts in the diaspora communities, and there's the efforts transnationally to kind of push back. Uh, there's a lot of Muslim activism to try to push back against this stuff. But in terms of counter narratives, as we traditionally understand them, um, I don't think there's much. <laughs> and and even the ones that are present, that I that I can think about, I don't think have had much impact uh, in terms of how they've played out on the ground. The challenge, of course, with places like India and and Sri Lanka and Myanmar is a lot of these politics are very local, right? And they just happen to reach our radar, kind of almost filtered through far right uh, Hindu nationalist channels and so on. But a lot of this is local. And I don't don't know that much of this counter narrative uh, CVE stuff is really being played out locally, they're kind of being pushed online, um, but they're not really trickling down to where it matters, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that um, counter-narratives is a complicated area and really feeds what you're talking about, Cynthia, about policymaking. Um, And the the evaluations of effective counter-narratives are few and far between. And I often feel particularly as the right-wing extremist space here in Australia is seeking to align itself with other um, movements and um, communities, particularly through the use and um, of conspiratorial thinking, that as soon as you try to counter that, you're effectively playing into the narrative itself and the expectation that everyone is against us. Um, and so um, I think that is public communication. Um, and we have seen public communication to reach out, um, and, you know, moving away from terms like anti-vax, vaccine hesitancy, um, giving space, um, to, um, to manage conflicting relationships. I mean, I feel that's a perhaps a more effective space than seeking to propagate a narrative that is very top-down, when, as Hamonath has already said, much of this comes from bottom-up. Um, yeah.
3: Yeah, you, you might want to have a look at some of the narratives that were created in Australia some time back in the, the Exit White Power Program, which were very much broadcasting narratives to children um, about white supremacy and racism they don't work particularly well as lisa's mentioned that that broadcasting and that attempt to ideologically shift someone has been shown time and again to not be particularly effective and it can also you know entrench these people in their belief systems and feeling under threat and so on um, and challenged uh in australia we, we i think there's acknowledgement in government that the far right the actual far right is quite a small phenomenon and brought large federal or even state-based broadcasting campaigns against their narratives can aggrandize that movement and and almost legitimize that movement to some degree and as Lise has indicated I think at the moment a lot of the messaging that's going on at a state level in Victoria and New South Wales is really focused not so much on the white supremacy angle but those aligned communities such as the wellness community or the yoga community or some religious denominations that are becoming conspiratorial and anti-vax and aligning with some of the far-right anti-government conspiracy theories um that's a space where where a significant amount of government counter narrative has been happening and has been highly effective we're now at something like 95 percent vaccination rate uh in new south wales which goes to show you know just how small um you know these these groups uh, and these aligned movements actually are compared to national samples
2: perfect thank you um just moving on to a question about the impact of ongoing local and global dynamics Um, so we heard a little bit about covid and about some of the other common global dynamics that circulate but there's a question here about um, whether and how narratives about the Taliban's seizure of Afghanistan among, have, have taken root uh, among the Australian uh, and in the Indian far right. Um, so how, how is that being discussed? Um, and has it been a mobilizing tool so far in any way?
4: Uh, I can start if you like. I mean, there there's absolutely some uh, incorporation of kind of what happened in Afghanistan into far right content, right? I mean, um, I'm not so sure about how it's been talked about in India, but I know from um, other work on the far right that. Um, this idea that a you know manly men have <laughs> reestablished their presence uh, in Afghanistan, um, kind of declared an emirate, um, is often held up as you know why can't white people do this, right? And 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 so there's a bizarre kind of admiration for groups like the Taliban, Al Qaeda, even ISIS uh, within elements of the far right that sees them as um, you know truly committed individuals who are willing to fight and die for something they believe in and who have. Uh, shown that doing that um, helps you establish an actual governance structure, which uh, white nationalists want to establish in in the white ethnostate. And so there's this, um, and this goes back, you know, um, uh, even in the early days, I think uh, even, even with people like, um, uh what's his face uh, metzger <laughs> tom metzger and others who've often praised um uh some of these accomplishments by jihadist groups and so on um as as, as you know potential uh things to follow uh, so that that kind of stuff happened um in telegram in particular um, after the taliban seized afghanistan um and and so that those that rhetoric was quite important
3: our recent research on telegram is very similar i think to to yours uh, in that we've seen a series of narratives around uh, male strength and warrior ethos uh, amongst the far-right groups in Australia, including National Socialist Network and others. And it's this um, dynamic around uh, societies that divide their scholars and thinkers away from their, their fighters, you know, are prone to become decadent and, and to fall apart and to eventually sort of sink into liberalism and decay, whereas societies that are martial and, and warrior-based um and where uh you know men are allowed to be you know um militant uh will be strong and will be virile and the taliban is held up and his victory is held up uh, amongst australian far-right groups as an example of that Uh, and it is just so ironic in that it was only a year or two ago that islam and 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 the threat of islam particularly the threat of islamic terrorism was really used uh by the far right in Australia as its prime mobilizing narrative you know in our earlier work looking at Gab and looking at, uh, at Twitter uh that was that was really the dominant narrative and that has dropped away enormously in Australia in the last sort of 24 months um to be replaced almost by this this celebration of strong martial uh apparently you know Islamic cultures such as the Emirate in Afghanistan.
2: Perfect, thank you. Um, so we're not gonna run out of questions here. So I'm gonna th- I'm gonna ask a couple of uh regional specific ones. Um so first I'll turn to a cluster of questions that came in for Amar, and then I'll turn to some Australia ones. Uh so Amar, there's a couple of questions here about the role of the diaspora. Um, and they are slightly they're framed slightly differently. So I'll just read them and and uh read the 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 group of questions that are for you in general. So First one says, can you talk about the role of the diaspora in furthering the RSS objectives and narratives? Um, But also another question says, you know, the the RSS influence in the diaspora, especially or including in the U.S., how does that impact lobbying and culture wars? Um, And do you see RSS-aligned groups interacting with right-wing groups in Asia as well? So some of these kind of questions about the diaspora and how these groups work across borders. And then I'll just throw you the other uh, specific regional one for you, which is, how does the issue of accountability or non-accountability for Modi affect the propensity for right-wing violence in India? Um, So really one question about leadership and accountability and messaging from the top down kind of, and uh, how that leads to or affects violence and the other about these questions about the diaspora.
4: So easy questions. Um, (laughs) um, No, I think, I think the diaspora is huge, right? I think the diaspora influence um, in what what we're seeing with Hindu nationalism transnationally is is massive. Uh, There are groups like the Hindu uh, Swayam Savak Sang in the US, in Canada, um, and the international wing of the RSS, uh, or linked to the international wing of the RSS, which um, have been organizing protests, have been uh, pushing back against um, any kind of perceived slight against uh, Hindu identity in the diaspora, any kind of Muslim activism against Hindu uh, hindu nationalism in in the in uh, in india and so on um uh we know for you know the, the famous kind of howdy modi event in houston which was attended by you know 50000 people uh including the president uh, including president trump um was was kind of uh, an important event to to show the way in which kind of Again, this kind of heightened in-group ethnic, uh, racial identity um, forms bonds between other groups that are also elevating these kinds of in-group identities, right? And and so there's a kind of mutual respect there for or oh, you 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 know you may be a different ethnicity or different racial identity, but we're still fighting for the same thing. Um, in Canada, as I mentioned, um, they, they a lot of these movements uh, it isn't huge in Canada. There's like one guy really in one organization, uh, but he's very loud. Um, but he shows up. Uh, his, his I mean, as people show up at things like um, municipal government meetings, there was one recently where uh, mosques in Peel Region were allowed to broadcast the call to prayer, for example, during the month of Ramadan. Um, and this was a—he he turned this into a massive campaign uh, of of you know Muslims are slowly taking over the country and, and 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 things like that. And so there there is a kind of diaspora presence um, on the ground, in particular, of of kind of this Hindu nationalist agitation in the online space, it's equally kind of profound, right? You have the famous um, BJP IT cell, which is uh, a kind of network uh, of trolls and uh, people who kind of occupy the online space they put out memes they harass people online they troll people online they dox people online um, if you kind of, if you're a critical of in, uh, of the government at all um, you kind of get uh, harassed quite easily I remember when our uh, ISD report came out um, you know, I've studied ISIS, I've studied neo-Nazis, and I've never gotten as much hate speech um, as I did when I, when this one report came out about Hindutva, right? And so uh, the kind of online uh, presence um, is, is, is pretty serious. Um, in terms of the modi one um, i mean i think that's that's fundamentally accurate i think um, once an individual like him who you know a former member of the rss um a former rss activist becomes the prime minister um, you're going to have um much like you saw with the trump administration a kind of emboldening um of, of of the movement um and and this kind of social movement that used to function um when they didn't when they weren't in power now uh, function as if they're basically an arm of the government, right? And so a lot of the violence that's happening on the ground um, uh, is directed often by ministers, people in power in in in, uh, in the state apparatus uh, that that go unpunished, um, but. You know, a, a, a massive amount of reporting has shown that a lot of this is driven by people uh, who are in positions of power. Police don't do anything. They stand by and uh, watch as mosques are being burnt, et cetera. And so I think the proximity, having someone like him in power uh, has huge consequences on the ground locally. Great,
2: right, Thank you. I um, will turn to one of the Australia specific ones, which is about gender. Uh, the question is, are women playing a major role in Australian domestic extremism? Can you talk a bit about the issue of gender?
0: I think gender is quite specific. Um, and you have to address it from different kinds of extremism. Um, in the far right, extremist kind of online space. So are definitely women um, or, or or users who seem to identify in that way. Um, But in terms of huge influence, I think it's important to note that one of the things that we saw was a huge anti-feminist narrative within this um, kind of milieu um, and a real sense of antagonism and a real tension. And I think it is, um, I think other researchers um, have have pointed to this critical tension within this kind of milieu around um, how you balance the desire to protect the white woman um, and equally not give voice to the white woman. Um, it, to what extent is that protection empowering and what it, to what extent it is, is a woman taking ownership in this space problematic uh, and, and, and creates these, these issues. There aren't any, um, it's not that women don't exist and aren't a part of this space. Um, but in terms of having major influence, um, particularly in our know, kind of the research that we were seeing, it's it, it's more the the role of women and um an anti-feminist kind of assessment um and, and narrative and concerns around what the role of women should be and lo- looks like, etc., that is kind of being pushed. And as Julian already alluded to this. You know, we saw it in our previous work. This real strength around, in terms of a pushing narrative of, of male strength, a male empowerment, um, a male mental health, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as opposed to a focus on kind of femininity and females.
2: Terrific. Sorry, trying to find the uh, the the mute button there. Um, there's a cluster here of questions about economic issues. And so I'll just read them as they come and, and then anyone can take it. Uh, uh, so there's really two questions here. One is whether some of the anti-immigrant narratives are linked to economic insecurity. So how much of this is about sort of they, they are coming, they are taking our jobs, it says. And the other is, can you speak to the real or perceived socioeconomic disenfranchisement of groups that leads to the sense of loss of prestige or status and resentment against minority groups that appear to be doing well? So, you know, I guess on the one hand, it's how much of this is about rhetoric and how much of this is about perceived disenfranchisement. Where do where do we um, see these issues of of economic insecurity, real or perceived? playing into the narratives or
3: the anti-immigrant discourse? We, we do have some data from a previous study to support this. We, we did a study some time back, uh, looking at Google search terms, in Australia and and where far-right extremist Google search terms were located uh, in in the state of New South Wales. Uh, And without talking about the regions, we we did find a correlation between your classic post-industrial, white working class, economically marginalised areas, and what appeared to be online far-right activity. Um, And that would fit with the economic deprivation thesis that that I think we're all familiar with uh, with the far-right in places like North America and and Western Europe and so on. But the the reality is more complex, I think, also in Australia in that we also see um, movements of of groups like the the Proud Boys and the National Socialist Network and and others that are decidedly middle class um, and urban. Uh, young well-groomed men um, for the most part uh, looking to create what they call parallel societies uh, where they get, you know, jobs in in law or government or, or wherever it might be, and, and wait for the opportunity to, for an accelerationist type um, action to, to to create a grab for power. They don't seem to be attached at all to this economic marginalisation. Much more about identity and you know, much more about about a sense of of prestige uh, and so on. Um, I think again, one of the differences between Australia, perhaps, and some other parts of the world where we have, um, you know, far right movements at the moment is that Australia is, has been fundamentally very wealthy for the last 30 years. We haven't, until COVID came, we hadn't actually had a recession for 30 years. Our generation have been born and grown up uh, in prosperity. And that's largely because of our trading relationship with with China and Asia. and uh, that has meant I, we haven't had that erosion of the middle class that, that you get in some places. It certainly has happened, but not maybe to the extent of, of some other parts of the world. And so um, if that economic deprivation thesis is correct in Australia, that could be one of the reasons why the far right, while quite noisy in Australia and active, uh, are not necessarily as large as, as you might expect.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, it it's definitely important. Um, I think uh, it goes back to a lot of uh, studies in radicalization literature, for example, that looks at the specificity problem, right? Which is a lot of people suffer economically, a lot of people are going through these economic difficulties. It's the question of how is it being interpreted, um, and 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 through what lens is it being interpreted, right? And so this is applied to a lot of uh, my interviews with jihadists, for example, where they'll say things like because of kind of societal discrimination, um, they're not going to let me get ahead. Right. And so the, it's a kind of anticipation of future economic disenfranchisement um, and how that, how the, how the lens of discrimination interprets uh, comes to it comes into interpret your kind of economic uh, potential. Um, and I think that applies to the far right as well, that, that it's not simply that people are economically disenfranchised, but how that fits into the, how that can be woven into a kind of narrative, whether you blame the Jewish community or whether you blame um uh immigrants or whatnot. I think it has to be filtered through uh the kind of uh uh some sort of ideal ideological interpretation for it to have mobilizing potential in, in, in that sort of way um, so by itself I don't think it really does anything I mean we saw the, the, there's a Canadian incident uh, during the COVID pandemic where uh, because of lockdown because of quarantine uh, his economic livelihood his small business shut down um, all of these kind of consequences happened to him His Chuck was going to be repossessed um by those things, but th- those things by itself mean nothing, but because it was reinterpreted through uh, kind of the Great Reset conspiracy theory and and uh, is COVID a hoax and who's really behind it, um, that made him kind of drive across the country to try to confront the prime minister of Canada, right? On, on um, how, why are these things happening to me? So it has to be, I think, filtered in, in, in some sort of way, otherwise by itself, it doesn't really do anything.
2: Great, thanks so much, Amar. So we have about five minutes uh, left in the, in the Q&A portion of this um, before I hand this back over to Alistair. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, pr- come back to what I promised I would, which is the concluding thoughts about policy um, or about solutions really and interventions. Um, so knowing that we have an audience that, can, you know, that includes a lot of policy folks or a lot of folks who are on the decision-making side of things, Um, you know, if you had a magic wand of some kind and you could just wave it and, and, and create some sort of policy action, um, either at the national level or at the global level, um, and it could be on intervention, it could be on the security side, you know, what are one or two or three things that you, each of you really think, um, are needed and would really help, um, and it doesn't have to be the magic wand kind of thing. It can be an actual, you know, but, but feel free to think big. I'm curious to know uh, where you would go with this. And you have about 90 seconds to to, uh, to convey your thoughts on that. So sorry to, to make it uh, tight on time, but I'll just let you go in whichever order you want. Thanks.
0: Okay, well, ninety seconds it is. My hit, my 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 uh, my wish list. Okay, what is it? One, let's let's talk about what we what we mean by success in this space. Um, it's really important. The presence of violence is not an indication of failure. Um, so let's think about how we evaluate what we do um, from the get go um, with clear understandings of how we're measuring success. And I think the second thing that is that we talk about a lot with our policymakers here is the importance of disassociating um, the threat of violence from specific and often very small groups with broader issues of uh, erosion of liberal democracy um, and social cohesion. And by disaggregating them and not subsuming them to violent extremism, um, we can have more nuanced um, messaging, communication and programs.
3: All right, 90 seconds, maybe less. I would say that uh, I'm not going to talk about social media moderation, nor am I going to talk about economics. I would follow on from Lise by saying that, uh, social cohesion in Australia I think should be seen as not so much a, a quest for harmony but instead how well a society deals with difference and dissidents uh, and whether you're able to have those conversations ongoing that are part of the democratic um, situation and, and model. Um, so social cohesion programs that actually allow people to voice difference and dissidents uh, and create spaces where those voices are uh, are civil uh, and engage in the basic uh, fundamentals of a liberal democracy are really important. I don't think it's about narratives and messaging. I think it's about action, active of narratives where people do something. Uh, and really, for me, it comes down to, to civic engagement programs that uh, allow people to feel like they are paid up stakeholders in whatever local or state or federal level of government they're interested in, uh, their voices are heard, they have agency. Uh, I don't think it's a a silver bullet, but I think all of our democracies had much more civil engagement generations ago than they do today. Uh, And it's one of the driving forces of marginalization and radicalization in in, in Australia right now.
4: Yeah, I I mean, I I agree with all of that. I think the broader broader issue for me is turning down the temperature a bit. Um, I I think a lot of our politics um, has become... Uh, made cosmic in a way. I mean, I, I've said this before, is that what used to be kind of very boring policy disagreements um, have now become kind of us and them in group, out group um, kind of uh, good versus evil battles that um, over the last little while um, has, I think, co- caused a lot of consequences. And so I think turning down the temperature a bit on um, identity politics and, and 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 some of that, this kind of identity battles that we're engaged in now, online and offline, um, i think i think is a good way to go i don't know how you do that <laughs> maybe if i had another 90 seconds no. um but i think um i think that that that's an important uh, step forward
2: terrific uh well on behalf of of usip and the resolve network and and everyone listening i want to thank each of you so much for uh for such compelling remarks and and i couldn't have you know I promise I didn't um I didn't pay them off in advance to say the things about education that I would have said but um but uh, I was really delighted to hear that that we're not just having a conversation about security and intelligence and improving the kind of hammer of law enforcement but also about what's required for issues of social cohesion and for learning to live together across difference and uh, I hope that we can continue to have those conversations in an integrated way as part of our our, our conversations about extremism and uh, and and political violence um so i'm going to hand it back over to alistair reid and uh, it's been a real pleasure to be with you and and thank you again to each of our speakers
1: great thank you very much Cynthia. you i just want to say thank you very much to all of our speakers for such an engaging discussion today and a big thank you for everyone in the audience for taking the time to join us today if you've um you found um, what the topic today of interest please keep um, an eye out on our website um for to work continuing in this area we have um upcoming papers from our panelists from Amara and from Julian Lees, uh, hopefully coming out within the next few months and um, also please come and join us for um, the next events in our resolve um, global forum series uh, next event is security dilemmas in sub-saharan africa the role of community-based armed groups which will be on wednesday december 1st from 9 30 a.m eastern time so please um, sign up online and um, with um, that i would just like to bring the session to a close with a big thank you to everyone again and um, hope you all come and join us again next time thank you very much everyone